0: good to be back with you. Uh, One of the amazing things about how uh, great this church is, is um, they they afford my family and I an opportunity for a little bit more of a lengthy respite during the summer. And so uh, you've got to hear from some great communicators, both in and outside the church. Can we just give it up for those guys for preaching God's word? Yeah. Yeah, it's... It's a, it's a weighty task, and I'm so honored uh, that they um, have so faithfully brought you God's Word. Um, so today we're looking at this text where, you know, it's, it's Jesus um, basically going in between two destinations, right? I mean, he's been preaching uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's taught all these parables. Nathan uh, brought that to us. And then, you know, next week we're going to see he, he's going actually over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee uh, to preach there also and to heal a man who's demon-possessed. And so like we have this kind of in-between thing here that's happening, this encounter that Jesus has with his disciples that really has a lot uh, in store for us together today. Because I think one of the very unique things about this passage is that we are, uh, we get to see a glimpse of the humanity of Jesus. I mean, we see Jesus taking a nap. I mean, how cool is that? You're like, man, I thought I was just weak. I just needed naps. Jesus needed a nap too. He's just like me. But then on the other side of things, we see the power of God. We see Jesus Christ calming a storm, uh, ushering in the power that spoke, uh, you know, the world into existence, commandeering, you know, uh, that storm to to make it uh, obey his voice. And so we catch both glimpses of that uh, today. Uh, And I think really where the Lord has us going today is, is really all about how we experience God's power and channel it in our lives and what it means for us to really confess and admit that we are powerless. You know, I'm just going to say this. Sometimes Christians do really weird things, okay? Anybody agree with me? Okay, good, 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 good. You know, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. I used to think that it was just them. You know what I mean? I thought it was those guys out there that did the weird things. And then I became a youth pastor, and uh and and so you know I remember the time I don't know 15 18 years ago that I took my youth group to a Christian haunted house. Yeah, go ahead and laugh it up. It's as bad as it sounds. They had all these like real life scenarios where they're attempting to scare the hell out of you, you know, literally. And um You know, there's this, like, car accident. There's this drug overdose scene, gun violence scene. And then at the very end, there's this scene where it's, like, you in front of Satan. And, like, Jesus is there. And it's all going down. And at that moment, they say, who wants to follow Jesus now? And everybody's like, me! And you would think that revival had broken out. But it turns out that emotionally manipulative tactics never really work, do they? But what we were trying to do, what, what the, the whole production was trying to do is to try to give you a healthy fear of God so that you'll make wiser decisions, right, to, to help us to feel powerless, right, so that we could channel the, the power of God. There's, you know, there's been other thing, weird things that Christians have done, too. Uh, I went to college with this guy. I've shared this story before because it's such a good one. You have to share it. But he, he comes in our freshman year of college. He's like, hey, my name's Caleb. And he's like walking around like this and he goes, "I'm on the power team." I'm like, "What in the world's a power team?" Well, it turns out there's these in the in the late 90s there was this group of muscle-head evangelists that would go around and they would perform feats of strength in the name of Jesus. And they would fill arenas with, you know, and they would they would kind of do all of these kinds of things and they would say Philippians 4:13, "You know, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength," right? But they failed to mention that the whole context of that passage was about strength to suffer well, right? You know, so Christians do weird things. We're probably doing weird things right now. We just don't know what they are yet. You know, you never know when you're in that moment until later. But anyway, today we are talking about powerlessness. That is a theme of what we're going to be looking at. Uh, many people, you know, when you, when you think about uh, the situation on the Sea of Galilee, we, we, we think about the beach, we think about the sea, we think about vacation. People who have lived close to the ocean, they think maybe a little bit about vacation, but they think about chaos. They think about destruction. They think about hurricanes. They think about all of the bad things that can happen in the sea as well. You don't get the beauty without the chaos and the mystery of the sea. So as we dig into this together today, I want you to ask yourself this question. What happens in your life when you realize that you don't have the power or control that you think you need in a given circumstance? Because that's what happened with these disciples. You know, what what happens in your heart when the boat that you're in starts sinking, whatever that proverbial boat is in your life? Because this is something that the Lord desires to surface in each of us today. Because if we fail to address that, we can run the risk, of living under this false premise where we think that if God really loved us, bad things wouldn't happen. And that's just simply not the truth. You see, I think sometimes we can think that if bad things just didn't happen to us, then we would, we would feel more of God's love and his presence. But we actually learn to feel the love and presence of God in the midst of the storms. I mean, the hope was that Jesus was actually in the boat with them, not that they avoided the storm. And so we want to look at this together today, Um, because the glory of the gospel is that trials and suffering drive us to the end of our own power, and it's there and there only that the power of God can be experienced in our lives. And that's going to be our big idea together for today, is that we cannot experience the power of God until we find ourselves surrendered to our own powerless nature, Right, um, And the whole point of this storm that, that, that Jesus leads his disciples through was to reveal more and more of Jesus to the world, to reveal his divinity. And when you're trying to figure out a situation that like, mystifies you, that stumps you, something that you just can't control. I mean, think about uh, if you've ever been around someone that has just like a crazy diagnosis or a crazy health thing going on, rather. And you're trying to figure out what's going on. All you have is what? questions. You're trying to figure out, help us get to the bottom of this. We ha- there has to be an answer to what's happening. And these disciples go on this full interrogation mode on Jesus too. And they ask a series of questions. Jesus rebukes them, asks them some questions as well. And so I just found it fitting to organize this, this message for today to just, just ask and answer the questions that Jesus and his disciples are asking and answering. And there are three questions in this passage that we're looking at today that'll give shape to this. The first thing that happens is there's an accusation as they leave uh, to go over to the country of the the Gerasenes on the other side of, on the Sea of Galilee, and they make this accusation to Jesus when the storm comes up and he's sleeping on the boat. They say, Jesus, don't you care about us? So they assume what it would look like for Jesus to care about them, right? The second uh, question is really a rebuke where Jesus comes back uh, at them and he says, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? The third question is really a revelation that the disciples begin to have as they ponder what's happened in their midst, where they say, who is this man? So let's dig into that first point together today, this accusation. Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? Let's bring that to our memory again by turning our Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Uh, We're going to look at verses 35 through 37 here. Here's what the text says. On that day when evening had come, uh, Jesus said to the disciples, let's go across to the other side of the lake. That's, that's the plan. So leaving the crowd, uh, they took Jesus with them in the boat just as he was. I mean, fresh out of the pulpit, just took him in the boat, right? Um, and, and the other boats that were with him, and there were, there were several other boats that were around Jesus' boat. There were people on the shore of the Sea of Galilee as well. They are all listening to Jesus share these parables about the kingdom. And and then verse 37 says this. So they're headed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over into the boat so that the boat was already filling up with water. It was about to capsize. So that's kind of the scenario that we have here. Um, Jesus was teaching all day. He was exhausted clearly, right? He was taking a nap, fell asleep quick. you got to watch out for those preacher naps. They'll come on quick. And so Jesus in the boat. The waves start breaking in. Now, a little bit about the context uh, of Israel, really around the, uh, the, the Galilean uh, countryside. There's the Sea of Galilee, which we would, I mean, honestly, here, we, it's about the size of Lake Lanier or something. It's a smaller lake, right? You think sea, it's not a big ocean. It's a lake uh, that's kind of tucked in uh, to Israel. Uh, it's connected uh, to the south, to the Jordan River, and then from, from the Jordan River down to the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place uh, on the earth, a thousand feet below sea level. So, uh, just you know, three hundred feet in elevation above—that's where the Sea of Galilee sits, at uh, seven hundred feet below sea level. Now, just up the mountain to the north is Mount Hermon. You you can read about this in the Psalms. Mount Hermon's uh, referenced often. It sits at ninety-two hundred feet of elevation. So, between the difference in the seven hundred feet below sea level and the ninety-two hundred feet above sea level, you've got a ten thousand or two mile gap, right? And so you've got these cool uh, mountain winds blowing over Mount Hermon, and then you've got these, these desert winds on the Sea of Galilee. And, and I'm no meteorologist, but I think when those two things happen, storms happen, right? And so that, this is exactly what happens. And, and for these disciples, though, this would have been of something that they would have been pretty familiar with, right? Because at least four of Jesus' disciples, what was their occupation? Fishermen. They knew the Sea of Galilee inside and out. They had been on many storms with their fathers running their fishing businesses, and they knew what this was like. But it really seemed like this one hit different, because all of those fishermen are scared to death, right? And so um, it was so huge that it terrified everyone. and it, it's, it's, you know breaking out of control. And so uh, one of the points of this story, I think, is to show us that not even Jesus or his followers are immune from things like storms, through trials in life. If if God let the storm fall on Jesus, he's gonna let it fall on us, his followers as well, right? And so I think it's really important, as as simple as it sounds, to just remember that, that we don't follow Jesus because he makes life easier. We follow Jesus because he makes life possible. It's in this disbelief that Jesus was, you know, gonna get them to the other side, that they didn't actually believe that he was gonna do that, that, that they, they wake Jesus up in this utter and uh, complete despair. Now, it's hard to say what, what Jesus wanted to do when he was awakened. Um, all I know is that if you want to see the, un, the most unsanctified part of my life, wake me up on a Sunday, morning or Sunday afternoon after I preach, right? I mean, you don't know what's going to happen, right? But, but so they wake Jesus up. I, I, don't, I don't even think they have a category that Jesus could potentially calm the storm, you know what I really think they're after? They just want to know that Jesus is with them, that he's in it with them, that he's connected to their heart in the middle of this really scary situation. So verse 38 says this, he was in the stern, which is the back of the boat, asleep on a cushion that he had found. And they woke him up and they said, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? So here here we find these men, into themselves, utterly powerless. And... um, And this event steers the disciples up, and it's more, it's, you think about it like this, is there a more terrifying place to be in life than to be utterly helpless? I don't know if you've had moments like this before, but I've had several. Moments where you're like, you you, you say something like this, there has to be something we can do. You ever been in a situation like that? There has to be There has to be, are are we just, the only thing we can do is pray? Are you kidding me, God? Right? And we we think about it like that. Maybe you've watched someone that you deeply love come to the end of their life and you feel utterly helpless, utterly powerless. Maybe the, the perfect plan that you had for your life is, is in shambles like the career that you hoped that would provide for your family, the, the spouse that you really longed for, the family, the kids. Maybe your preferred future, whatever that is, never came to fruition, and you feel just powerless. What went wrong, you ask God? Or maybe everything looks great from the outside looking in, but secretly, in your true heart of hearts, something is eating you alive and you just can't bear it anymore. You just feel powerless. Friend, where is it that you turn when you're powerless? When you start like these disciples accusing the Lord for your situation, what is it that you want from him in that moment? What is it that you assume about his heart toward you in those moments? Because these disciples, they made assumptions They made a terrible assumption, actually, and it was this, that Jesus didn't care for them. He was now off the clock and could care less if they lived or died. But you see, it's in these moments of desperation that we are offered the most potential for growth and transformation. God doesn't waste any pain. He's not in the business of wasting any trials that you go through. In fact, the scripture says that his heart is so pure and so good that, that he can't help but use everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his perfect. He doesn't waste anything. Isn't that amazing news? Sometimes we just think, man, I just, if I just didn't have to go through it, I'd have more faith. I'd follow Jesus more closely. The best news we have is that he's in the boat with us, church. Listen to these invitations that the scriptures give us over and over and over again. Psalm 55 and 1 Peter 5, just to name a couple. Psalm 55 says this, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. That's a promise. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Now, the righteous are those who have received a righteousness not by faith, not by works, right? So he's given them this gift to believe in the righteousness of Christ on their behalf. He says that we are we are we are invited to cast our burdens, our troubles, to to, to cast them onto his life because he's never gonna allow us to be eternally moved or shaken or taken away from him. First Peter 5 says it in a very similar way. He says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Do you believe that the Lord cares for you this morning? Do you believe that he hears you? Do you believe that he's with you in the boat of whatever storm you're going through this morning? Because if you do, he says you'll release the things that are troubling you. To cast means to throw, to eject or to toss your burden. It's it's not meant to have a string on it where it comes back to you like a yo-yo, right? It's to release it to his care. And now here's what can create a sense of anxiety in our life. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't for you. It's, it's to acknowledge that burden that you've been carrying, that terror, that trial, that, that situation, that circumstance, without surrendering it to God's care. So it's that you acknowledge it, this big bad thing that's happened, but you say, I'm going to cling onto it. I'm not going to give it to the Lord. In those moments, the scriptures say you will experience a sense of Of anxiety, And, and of course, I know it's not always as simple and cut and dry as that. But it can be, you know, that hanging on to this sense of powerlessness without experience his strength leads us to a, a deeper and deeper sense of helplessness and despair. Our job is to, as we become aware of the trials and troubles that we have in life, is to toss our troubles onto Jesus. Why? Because we trust that his heart toward us is good. We're not making these accusations that he doesn't care for us. The truth is, there's never, ever been a day in history where God has not been caring for you. The very fact that God sent his son to be exhausted from preaching, to to sit in a boat that was fashioned out of trees that he spoke into existence, on the middle of an ocean that he called into existence, in the middle of a storm that he has control over, just to be with us is the proof of his love for me and for you, church. He's with us. What is it in your life right now that's troubling you? Are you have you stopped long enough to just consider what's troubling your heart? Maybe you're like me and you often feel like a, a big bag of troubles that just weighs down your hope. Maybe it's financial trouble, and you're just so embarrassed that it's got this bad and you don't really know where to go from here and you're just carrying it alone and it's just eating you alive. Maybe it's relational conflict and trouble. You're, you're not reconciled with someone you deeply love and you can't really even see a hopeful path forward. You just carry it alone and it's weighing you down. Or maybe it's some kind of physical thing that's going on with your body and you just think, God, could you just bring healing to my life? What would it look like for you to see God with you sustaining you, even when it's unbearable. What would you need to believe about God today to cast your troubles onto him and believe that he cares for you instead of accusing him of not caring for you? What would you need to believe about his heart toward you? You need to believe that it's good toward you. Maybe, maybe that's what some of you, that's what you're gonna take away today is like I just need to believe that God's heart toward me is actually good. Because it's then and then only that you'll cast your care on him. The second question that we see is there's this rebuke. So they accuse Jesus. Then there's this rebuke. And it comes in verse 39 to 40 here. It says this, "And, and he awoke. And there's two rebukes that happen. I want you to watch them. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And then here's the second rebuke. He said to them, the disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So what's happening with Jesus when he calls out the storm is that he's acknowledging the the big bad thing that's creating the conflict and the trouble in his disciples' life. And why does he do that first? Because he cares for them. He wants to calm them. He wants their hearts to be still and know that he's the Lord. And so, so what happens when he, he's reversing the curse, when he says, peace, be still, he's bringing the chaos back into order. And what happens? The moonlit sky glistened off the calm Galilean waters in an instant. And why? Because all of his creation for all of his time will always and only obey his voice. He has power and control over every situation. The chaos we experience now uh, in nature or in our own lives is not because he doesn't care. In an instant, he has power to make it all stop. And on that day when he returns, church, he will. But right now, our job is not to make accusations about the heart and character of our Lord. The scriptures tell us uh, that he's being patient with the world that he's being patient, not wishing that anyone would perish, but all would come to repentance is what the scriptures say. And so as we endure the trials and the storms and the problems and the issues that we have no control over, we're reminded that God is with us and he is working in our lives and he's drawing others to himself even when we can't explain it. Even when we don't have any answers, he's still in the boat with us. The second rebuke that Jesus offers is he addresses his disciples. Now, Typically, I've read this rebuke as almost like a scowl, like, a, like Jesus kind of just kind of beating them over the head a little bit. Like, come on, guys, you don't have any faith? I wonder how often you think about Jesus talking to you like that. You see, the truth is, I don't think Jesus, that's Jesus' tone at all. I wonder if Jesus was smiling at his disciples when he said that. Come on, guys. You still don't have faith? You still don't believe I have faith? power that I am who i told you I am? You've seen me heal these people. You, I've been walking with you. I, I called you. You know you're not worthy, but you're, you're worthy to me because I've called you. You still, don't have, you still don't have faith? You see, Jesus is for us, and he will complete the good work that he started. And he began that good work because the Father has called us to himself. And there will never be a day where he'll not be working that goodness into our lives. He's far more aware of your shortcomings and failings and the ways that you're going to be aware, become aware of how weak your faith is. He knows it all. So why would you believe that his heart toward you is angry and his attitude and his disposition toward you is one of anger? Why would you believe that about him? In becoming our Savior, our burdens become his. He is inextricably linked to your problems. And because of that, he will carry us through. He may not carry us through the way we want him to carry through. It might not play out the way that we'd imagined that it would. But he will finish that work. You see, I think many of us are simply conditioned to set our lives up to avoid these circumstantial storms, right? We think... um, you know, if we could just save enough money to last us that rainy day fund, then we'd never experience any, any trouble. Surely money can fix it, we think. Or if we just do enough for our kids and our families so that we can avoid all of these really painful and bad things, you know, then we can avoid the storm. We, we, we even think about these disciples, hey guys, you should have pulled the weather app up on your phone before you got set sail, right? We're conditioned to think that way, that life would be better without the storm. That's not the way Jesus set any of this up. Sooner or later, you realize one very important truth, that you can't avoid the storm. To follow Jesus, to follow Jesus is to see him uh, the only way that he's ever desired for us to see him, and that's him with us in the storm. And that and that alone is what sets our priorities in motion in such a way that honors his heart and follows his will. I'm rereading this super convicting book that I want to invite the rest of you to be convicted with me in reading on August 14th. It's called Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper and it is as intense as it sounds. I'm gonna read you a line that's really stuck with me this week that really talks about seeing seeing Jesus with us in the midst of the trouble. He says this, he says, what's the main thing, the essential thing in life? The thought of building life around Minimal mortality or minimal significance, you know, avoiding the storm. You know, a life defined by the question, what is permissible? He says, it almost felt disgusting to me. I don't want a minimal life. I didn't want a life on the outskirts of reality. I wanted to understand the main thing about life and pursuit. And that just just fires me up to think about living that kind of way with that kind of heart for others in this world. I don't want to waste my life trying to manage things that I have absolutely no control over and thus get to the end of my life and say, I never experienced the power of God because I never really surrendered. I don't know about you, I don't want to get there. That would be the worst feeling of all. And the encouragement that we have today is not that there's not going to be trouble in this world. In fact, one of the verses that we bring up often in our household um, when our kids put their troubles on us, and we, we want to bear them with our kids. We're not, we're not awful parents, okay? But we want to bear these burdens with our kids, but we remind them, hey guys, what did Jesus say in John 16, 33? In this world, you will have trouble. That is a promise that you can take to the bank. A trouble-free life is not something Jesus ever promised anyone. And so, to acknowledge the reality, yes, you're experiencing trouble right now. You're experiencing storms. You're experiencing hardship. It's threatening your joy. It's, it's, it's stealing your sense of peace. So where is God in it? He says, take heart because I've overcome the world. He's with us in it. The promise is not to avoid the storm. It's to remain connected by faith to Jesus in the storm. And as we pursue this main thing in life, which is living for the sake of him who gave his life for us, we have this promise, this promise that sounds simple. It's right here in the text today. You will make it to the other side. You think about these disciples. Jesus promised them in in, uh, Matthew 4, 35. I'm sorry, not Matthew, Mark 4, 35. We're going to the other side of the lake. What does 5.1 say? I love it. He says this. They came to the other side of the sea. (laughs) A simple promise. When you think about that metaphorically for your life, there tends to be things that you think, these are going to be disruptors. I'm not going to make it to eternity because of this. His grip on you is much stronger than your grip on him. When he says he will carry you to completion, you will make it to the other side, church. And that's what gives us hope when life gets really, really hard. You'll make it to eternity with our Father. We don't know when we will. Some of us may make it there sooner than we think we should. We don't know how it will all happen, but we do know that Jesus promises to complete his good work in us. And that is what gives us hope to stay connected and abiding with him in the storm. Now, As we see Jesus' disciples, they're kind of slowly becoming more aware of this reality in the boat with Jesus. So what's the last question that they ask? They say, who who is this man? Like we thought, we've been walking with him for a couple years, I don't even know who he is, right? Who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey his voice? You see what happens in these situations where God reveals himself and you become aware of how little you believe uh, of what he said, um, it kind of rattles you a little bit, right? I'm reminded of this story uh, about John uh, and Charles Wesley. And uh, it's it in October 17, 1735. John Wesley wrote this in his journal. They were, they were setting sail from England to Savannah, Georgia, of all places. Um, and their goal was to preach to the natives and lead them to Christ here in Georgia. And on the, the four month long trip, a, a storm came up. Um, and this storm was so bad that it, that it broke. Uh, the main mast of the ship. Now, if you don't know what the main mast is, it's the thing that's holding the very big sail up that gets you over here, right? And so they're in the middle of the sea, and the mast is broken in half. The crazy thing is, is that John and Charles are flipping out. They are going, we're dying. This is not. We're not gonna make it to America. This is gonna be so awful. But there's this group kind of seated uh, in the corner of the ship, this, this group that had been conditioned By the trials and hardships of life, they had a different disposition than the Wesley brothers did. They were the Moravians. And so, these Moravians that are on the ship with them, that are coming over here on mission, they're sitting calmly and they're singing hymns in the midst of this life threatening storm. Later in his journal, John became convinced of his inner weakness. And he, you know, he became convicted and he wrote this in his journal. It was then that I realized that mine was a dry land, fair weather faith. Can anybody relate to that? A faith that you think is strong until it gets challenged and you're like, "Eh, man, I got a lot of growth, right? John could relate to that. I've had a number of circumstances in my life that have shown me how weak my faith is. Now, the good thing for Christians is this. It's not the the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith, right? It's the best news of all. And so that's how we have the freedom for the Holy Spirit to swell faith inside of us and grow us up into the faith deeper and deeper as we walk through the the hard and the good times in life. Um, Mark 4.41 says this. I want you to notice something about uh, this passage. He says this. He says, they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, it wasn't the storm that terrified them the most. It was Jesus' rebuke of the storm that terrified them. And it terrified them in a different kind of way. It terrified them in such a way that they saw the divinity of Christ Jesus that day in a way they'd never seen it before. And you see, whenever uh, whenever the fear of the Lord takes hold of your life, it tends to reprioritize what you used to think was important in your life, because you realize that he is who he actually says that he is. Now, so what else do we discover here? Um, well, I have this feeling that the disciples really just wanted to know that Jesus was there with them and he was with them in it. And I don't, I don't think at this point they had any idea that he could actually stop a storm, I don't think it, it even registered for them. You know, there's this other interesting parallel in the Bible uh, that's very similar to this one with one big difference. It's the story about Jonah in Jonah chapter 1. And so think about this. Think about, okay, Jesus in the storm, Jonah in the storm, okay? Both were caught in a seemingly uncontrollable storm. Both were asleep in the boat during the storm. And the only people asleep in the boat, right? Both had people freaking out all around them uh, and and, and thinking that they were going to die both were awakened by the cries of those on the boat instead of the storm itself. Think about that for a second. Both required an obedience of the Lord to calm the storm. And there's even a fear of the Lord that ensues from the settling of the storm. Here's what Jonah 1, 14 through 16 says. Therefore they called out to the Lord, the people on the boat, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you, because you remember the storms come up because of Jonah's disobedience, that's a big difference in the, the two. and so verse 15 says this, so they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and made vows. You know what the Bible says about Jonah in Matthew chapter 12? It says that Jesus is the greater Jonah. And I, and I don't think I fully connected the dots to this today, how Jesus is the greater Jonah. You see, Jonah's deliverance was a temporary mercy for these sailors in order to accomplish the plan of his will to bring about repentance to that wicked city of Nineveh through the preaching of a reluctant servant named Jonah. The greater storm that had to be calmed, though, was not that storm that day on the, on the sea. The greater storm that had to be calm was our war against death itself, the relentless war that we're all in. But you see, Jesus is the greater Jonah who was tossed into the proverbial sea and not rescued by his Father in heaven. But instead, our Father in heaven allowed Jesus to sink to the depths of hell on our behalf. Think about it. That is how we have peace Because Jesus was willing to go overboard for us, even in our unbelief. And because he was raised from the dead, we no longer have to fear this world or any of the chaos that we're going to face this week or the rest of our lives. Why? Because as C.H. Spurgeon said, this storm has a bit in its mouth, and the Lord Jesus controls it. Here's what he said in a sermon. I'll close with this. Perhaps at this very moment, down in some cabin or amidst the noise and the tumult and the raging of the ocean, when many are alarmed, imagine this. Imagine that there are Christians there, and they've got calm faces, and they're patiently waiting their Father's will, whether it shall be to reach the port of heaven or to be spared to come again to land in the midst of life's trials and struggles once more. They feel that they are well cared for in the midst of this. They know that the storm has a bit in its mouth and that God holds it in. And nothing can hurt them, nothing can happen to them but what God permits. Friend, if you're in Christ, this is what's true of you. I don't know what you're dealing with today, but here's what I know to be true about the heart of Jesus. You see... It wasn't the storm that woke Jesus up. It was the cries of those that he loved. May we be the kind of people that beat down heaven's door with the cries of our heart because we know that he cares for us. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.